three words: 不怨人 don't blame others. We have this knee-jerk reaction to never want to take self-responsibility. It's always somebody else's fault. You don't turn around and say "f you" to the universe. I don't like that test you're giving me, but you go. I don't understand it. It's painful. But what do I know? Our ability to see light in every situation, including the presumably negative situation of having cancer, that is a deep politeness toward the universe. Welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio, a podcast sharing stories and wisdom from experts in the fields of holistic wellness and sustainable living. I am your host, Todd Howard. Coming to you from Ravenhill Herb Farm, a permaculture design campus of Pacific Rim College in Victoria, British Columbia. As the show's guests demonstrate, by doing small acts to embrace more mindful living, we can positively impact our communities. Much like the timeless classics that Dr. Heiner Fruhauf has devoted his life to study, this episode too will be a timeless classic of this podcast. Heiner's sage-like wisdom and advice effortlessly flows forth in the recounting of his life's journey and work. His breadth and depth of experience and consciousness to value all degrees of experience, from presumably positive to negative, is undeniably admirable. Heiner studied sinology, philosophy, and comparative literature in Shanghai, Hamburg, Tokyo, and Chicago, where he earned a doctoral degree from the Department of East Asian Languages and Civilizations. After encountering a major health crisis, his interest in healing led him into Chinese medicine, and particularly the study of its classical applications and eventually herbal formulas. Presently, he serves as founding professor of the College of Classical Chinese Medicine at National University of Natural Medicine in Portland, Oregon, and he is the founder of Classical Pearls, a Chinese herbal company specializing in quality and purity of ingredients. We cover a lot of territory in this episode, beginning with Heiner's early life battle with cancer, the universe aligning him with his destiny, the genesis of his professional projects and companies, and a powerful overview of five element philosophy and Taoist teachings. His legacy is already bridged past through present into future, but he is nowhere near the terminus of his life's work. His destiny is fulfilled step by step by his reverence for the universe and the opportunities that it presents him, opportunities that will never cease. Although this is a comparatively long episode, we only move the needle ever so subtly across the spectrum of his knowledge. Please enjoy this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with Heiner Fruhauf. Heiner, welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio. Thank you so very much for having me. It's an honor to have you. I'm very excited for this. And to start off, I want to acknowledge Lonnie Jarrett who suggested that I reach out to you. So thank you so much for that, Lonnie. And thank you, Heiner, for taking the time to chat today. Of course. Let's start at the end. And this is kind of a big question. What sort of legacy do you hope to leave in the field of Chinese medicine? I come from the family of um, MDs in Germany that from very early on imprinted on me this love for nature and that nature heals. And that's what excited me about the medicine. And uh, we had a little bit of uh, 
you know, COVID times and uh, academic uh, rollover, uh, administrative rollover at our university, the College of Classical Chinese Medicine that I founded over there. And uh, there it also became clear to me more than my legacy, more so than being for one single book or uh, uh, institutional foundation or so is really for the field and not so much for the field uh, of Chinese medicine, but for the field of natural medicine as a whole to uh, make sure to uphold those age old principles that nature cures. And the minute we depart from that and think that artificial means and something we do in the laboratory is better than that, then that usually uh, results in disappointment and we lose a lot of ancient wisdom. So the preservation of that uh, in a certain way through my teaching, through my writing, but also in uh, perhaps the inspiration of the younger generation so that that uh, becomes the, their foundation as they embark on the study of natural medicine, whatever field uh, they choose to do that in. Wonderful. How has that foundation for you of that connection to nature and that knowledge that nature cures helped to guide you through your life and through your development? I'm uh, originally trained as a sinologist, which is Chinese literature expert and it can be very dry, like reading Confucius and things like that. But it's always stood out to me that everything in the ancient record uh, in China, at least, and I think all ancient uh, traditions, whether it's Egypt or Sumer or Greece, uh, that I know a little bit about or India, uh, it, it was always ritual and spirituality and medicine was always fun because it was a full body experience. And so for me, as somebody who was sort of born as an allergic and in some ways sickly child into a family who had all kinds of sensitivities, particularly in homeopathy is called the tuberculinic miasm, sort of like weak mucous membranes and predisposing you to food allergies and, and, and uh, respiratory problems. Um, I always felt like I had to protect myself more than the average person always felt this tremendous relief if I was hiking in the mountains or you know, four weeks in Brittany in the summertime, you have the sun on your skin and you bathe in the ocean and just this roaring back of your body and your vitality and your spirit that gives you a sense of control over your own destiny, but also this, this kind of uh, feeling uh, that all human civilizations uh, celebrate and write about uh, and uh, that's been important for me also in the education of my own children or so that no matter what you 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 experience life through your own body it's not just a mental thing uh, and and that's really what uh, was life-saving for me as somebody who 
experienced a life-threatening disease early on in my late 20s, uh, contracting cancer, was this, this, you know, going for a career in the ivory tower, basically, which was extremely mental, and then seeing how I could take all my sinological knowledge and apply it for something that couldn't only help uh, my patients uh, in a very real uh, way, but uh, myself in a very physical way that I could could translate. That's like I'm doing Qigong and teaching that and I'm in my internal medicine practice, primarily an herbalist. And uh, the herb, Chinese herbs have that benefit that they give you this immediate physical uh, sensation that your body is coming back online. And that's always been very um, uh, inspiring and satisfying for me and has uh, motivated me to keep teaching about that because it wasn't just all some mental belief system or so, but uh, experienced in your own body every day. Can you talk a bit more about the early health struggles that you had, how those impacted you? And I'm also curious about the types of therapies or treatments that in your earlier days were helpful for you. Of course, I um, grew up in, in, in the 1960s in Germany in a very uh, conservative uh, uh, doctor's household, Catholic altar boy. And my grandfather had me recite Latin in fourth grade. And, and uh, so that it was that kind of a environment, which I'm happy that I was born into these you know, being steeped in these ancient uh, uh, ways of thinking and education, but at the same time, it was also very uh, stifling in a certain way and probably prompted me uh, when I came into high school. And it was still that time where if you had good grades, of course, you should become a doctor or a lawyer or you know, be somebody. And what they were thinking at that time, uh, was an appropriate job to go for. And while my uh, GPA was, uh, I could have gone to university right away, study medicine, but I didn't. So uh, I wanted to do something totally different to get out from that. Not that my parents and grandparents were expecting me to do something, but there was sort of that weight of expectation in my uh, high school president of the school even took me aside and thought you choosing uh, Chinese studies and philosophy and German literature is a complete waste and you graduate at the top of your class and you throwing it away at this kind of nonsense. Uh, at that time, particularly China was still, you know, everybody was wearing blue clothes. It was basically like uh, North Korea nowadays, uh, completely shut off still. And uh, nobody was uh, studying Chinese uh, um, and, and these kind of non-money generating uh, uh, artistic things. <clears throat> and so I uh, went there, was, those were the best two years of my life. I met my future wife there who is American and that brought me eventually to the United States. I was all geared to become a professor of uh, 
Chinese literature uh, and uh, already had a, a, an assistant professorship lined up. When I got um, uh, seriously ill, I, I went to the hospital and said, there's something not right with me at age 27, just before I graduated with a PhD <clears throat> at the University of Chicago. And they said, uh, you're just a stressed out graduate student, just rest more. And uh, then all of a sudden, um, I got this, somebody called me up and I had some uh, blood tests done uh, for something completely unrelated. They said, oh, you, you, you should come in for surgery the day after tomorrow. There's a small chance it is not cancer. And I'm like, you must have oh, the wrong number, you know, as a 28 year old man. And so that was uh, through me then in sort of a tailspin where I decided to, I already had a, 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 a assistant professorship lined up at Harvard. So it's like as a young person kind of doggedly pursuing uh, this, this path of my own. And finally you were there to then give that up because you go like, there is something in my lifestyle that contributed to that. It's not just all genes, can't be. So I just wanted to take a time out and went uh, back to China, mostly for health self-healing purposes remembering that the Chinese medicine I had encountered there and um, just let this career in, in Chinese literature put that aside for a moment. And in the beginning, it was just for self-healing purposes, studying Qigong, studying the herbs I was already taking, understanding more about the acupuncture I was already receiving on Lawrence Avenue in Koreantown on the north side of Chicago had some very good practitioner there uh, that was inspiring to me as well because it definitely did make me feel uh, better. And uh, uh, I should also say, I, with that support, I was able to uh, get the surgery done, but then decline the radiation and the chemotherapy. Uh, and I think just as key as the help from the Chinese medicine side was, was the tremendous shock of being in the hospital system and being literally blackmailed to engage in these uh, relatively radical, um, of course, you know, at maybe at the time standard of care uh, therapies, but that would have impacted me for the rest of my life without a lot of transparency, you know, like how long, what are the statistics, how much larger is your survival chances if you do that, how much will your chances of getting cancer from the treatment down the road, uh, all of that was, it was basically, I was being told, you have completely irrational fear of the radiation treatment, particularly is like a couple of days in the sun. <laughs> and then when I decided really close to the sun <laughs> backed up by my father, uh, who is mostly practicing homeopathy in, in Germany, uh, there is a class of German MD still at that time in the in the 80s. Um, and this uh, Korean acupuncturist uh, said, your immune system is strong enough. Just just do the surgery and decline this other the treatment will be uh, sufficient probably. I was then told, well, then you're gonna be dead in two years. 
and you already got two CT scans, you will have more radiation than <laughs> I will ever have as a doctor. And you basically already damaged goods. Uh, you might as well go ahead and get the rest <sighs> of the radiation treatment. And then I found out later that I was basically uh, sort of manipulated to be part of a research study. It was the teaching hospital of the University of Chicago that there were wow. um, elsewhere data available that people in my situation without metastasis would be just fine after two years. They also admitted later that they could have only, because I did of course go back to those same doctors two years later and they just shrugged their shoulders and said, oh, well, now you're actually in a better situation uh, because we could have only guaranteed you metastasis free for two years. And now that you've made the two years and you don't have these toxic things in your body, you're actually better off than if you would have done it. But that, so all of this contributed to me going, this is scary because those people were of course not evil, but that was part of the standard of care that they thought they can't let the patient make that decision over their own body. And I felt completely violated uh, and was made that decision that I need to learn how to take care of myself. So that contributed to go to China. And I, at that time, it was there were not many foreigners studying Chinese medicine at the time. So at Chengdu University of Traditional Chinese Medicine, um, which is the oldest one of the uh, medicine colleges at the time in China, the Chinese medicine colleges, uh, and the town was very traditional. I remember that from my first day in the 80s. Um, I was able to enroll in just private courses with one-on-one -on -one teaching with the best uh, professors at the university, which is not possible nowadays anymore, where every university has like classes just for foreigners. Um, so that was like paradise. I was there. I kept staying longer. So I stayed there for two plus years, um, having private instruction with the best teachers in herbs and acupuncture and theory. Uh, and then I looked for Qigong teachers and Taoist uh, teachers outside of the outside of the school. Uh, so that was a very formative time at that time. And then I never looked back because I was so fascinated by this field and came back. And uh, even though I uh, was asked uh, to, to, to continue my literature teaching studies at other universities now, um, I decided I was going wanting to stay in this field of Chinese medicine for the rest of my life because I get to use all of my language skills, uh, everything I know. Uh, there is such a, you know, I see the books behind me. Those are all, uh, you know, works from the last 2000 years in, in Chinese medicine. So there is this tremendous record of uh, that in other medical traditions, you only have through oral tradition. And so I felt like that was uh, particularly in the United States where it was an accredited field already, but um, you have a lot of people, good practitioners, but very few people were able to read Chinese, particularly classical Chinese and practice the medicine at the same time. There was sort of this segregation. 
you've got the sinologist read the text and there are very few of those and they write about that but they don't practice the medicine and then you've got the practitioners who kind of don't know much about the original text they just read some very few english textbooks i saw a tremendous opportunity to uh to um get active in this field there was, was sort of virgin ground for so much research to be done uh, when I was uh, in German literature, there was so much stuff already written about. You basically would write a dissertation about the symbol of the rose and Thomas Mann's uh, death in Venice or so, extremely narrow uh, stuff. Whereas here you can, you know, write, uh, uh, you know, the, about a, a book about the theory of Chinese medicine because uh, there too few people have written about it even now. Uh, so that's been, you know, uh, amazing for me. I am uh, the biggest teacher in my life. The biggest fortuitous event in my life was getting cancer at that stage. Otherwise, I would be in a field that would be frustrating to me in a certain way because you spent all this work doing research, but there's only 20 people in the world who are interested in the same thing in the same time period and the same author you are. And uh, it doesn't really make a real difference in people's lives. Whereas here I get this incredible intellectual stimulation is so interesting to read and teach and write about. But at the same time, all of that knowledge is immediately usable even 2000 plus years afterwards for the maladies of modern mankind, humankind, um, uh, were a lot of Western medical modalities uh, failing to produce results or solve something symptom-wise short-term, but in the long-term actually contribute to making the root of the problem worse. So, uh, just very grateful for that. What a journey. I feel honored for you to share that story with me. That's incredible. I have so many things that I want to ask from that experience. So just <laughs> bear with me a moment while I gather all my thoughts. So as you said, you were given this fortuitous gift, which for most people would not be seen as that. And you took this cancer diagnosis and you had enough wherewithal, unfortunately, resources to seek help and figure out that you don't need to do what the system is telling you to do. And I, I can't believe that the same university that you probably gave tens of thousands of dollars to to get your PhD is the same system that then told you that you basically tricked you into needing to get chemo and radiation and told you you only had two years to live if you didn't do it. Like that's wow to honor the university of chicago they actually gave me a fantastic scholarship so they gave me money i never had to give oh, them okay money. <laughs> uh, and then the medical uh, university part or the hospital part that was completely unrelated to the yeah the very good east asian faculty that they have there but, um, okay well thank you for clarifying that oh, i'm i glad that again though you had the the resources to look into alternatives. And you've spoken a lot about the impact of cancer. Is there any specific outlook on life that that experience with cancer 
gave to you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one thing directly and then other things indirectly, because of course, then as you change your life path, you meet completely different people. You, I met all the teachers that imparted so much wisdom to me and I met my wife. I'm because of that living in a beautiful Oregon and uh, on 30 acres of land and uh, with my own goats and chicken and garden and <laughs> well we have some some commonalities I'm looking at my goats and chickens as I talk to you I see and uh, but directly I think my I, I mentioned earlier how growing up in what it was essentially, and I wasn't really aware of that, but what was essentially still very gloomy post-war Germany, uh, not quite as uh, bombed out and um, economically depressed in the 60s, but just the kind of landscape with the kind of ugly, very quickly put up housing and the kind of trauma from the in Nazi times or so was still lingering there somehow and growing up in that environment it just always felt like there was this tremendous pressure there in addition to that my uh, you know growing up in this conservative uh, Catholic doctor's household uh, then my parents getting divorced at age 12 which wasn't done so much there than in in that type of social environment. And I felt like even though I had always best grades and I was the doctor's son and people I never knew on the street, they would cuddle you and go like, that's Dr. Freehoff's son. And, <laughs> and, and all of a sudden being pitied by like the parents of my uh, friends, I, I think created pretty deep resolve inside of me that I would take my own destiny into my own hands and um, was rebellious that way. Also wanted to, to, to do something completely different from what my ancestors had done, even though I was the oldest son of the oldest son of the oldest son of the oldest son. I have 20 cousins and most of them became doctors, but I and had to wait several years until they could commence their studies. Um, I wanted to do my own thing, but what the cancer taught me at the moment where I had presumably gotten to the place that I was trying to go for, uh, you know, now I'm this self-made man and successful in my uh, field, but uh, all of a sudden the universe pulls the rug out from underneath you and to recognize right away subconsciously and later bringing that more and more into consciousness that there are no coincidences ever, that everything has a deep purpose and you can resent something or you can embrace it. And in a certain way, uh, what you encounter when you study the Chinese medicine texts and study the uh, biographies of famous doctors, you always find that they are deeply influenced in their practice, in their life, beyond the just the, the medical knowledge by Confucianism, by Taoism, by Buddhism. So that's the foundation of Chinese culture. And in a nutshell, what those three have in common 
is this overcoming of your personal preferences. I like this and I dislike that. And so, but that you reach a place where everything that comes your way, you see as meant to be, you have some yuanfen with that, some kind of karmic connection, uh, the, as the Chinese call that yuanfen, um, some, something from the universe is attaching to you and it's meaningful. And that is so your next stepping stone in life. And you can fight that and then suffer more, or you can embrace it and ponder what the meaning of that is. And that is essentially also the lesson in the oldest utterance of Chinese written culture, at least, which is the Yijing, the Book of Change, uh, which is really uh, a scientific book of symbols. You could also translate Yijing as book of symbols to understand the world. But it was originally was also an oracle book, right? You would use, you would throw arrow sticks and later coins or uh, et cetera to get to a particular line, one of the 64 chapters of the Yijing. And then it's as if the heavens are opening, the universe is revealing something to you. And that can, of course, only happen if you believe that nothing happens by accident. And even something as insignificant as a stick throw or coin throw has a purpose. And the universe is constantly speaking to you. So to emerge from a reality where I thought everything that happens depends on my doing to something where you feel you're completely embedded in the universe like a drop of water in the ocean and adapting to what the universe brings you is has been a lifelong learning and has been a tremendous relief really in this in a certain way uh, because trying to hold your own destiny or <laughs> is, 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 is quite the burden or believing that you need to do the same for your patients and for your family members, etc. So that's what I learned from Chinese culture and uh, it has been very, is still continuing to, to be a lesson for me nowadays. Wow, I love that. I love that the universe conspired to help you fulfill your destiny as the Tao says it does and that you were able to be aware of that enough to realize that yes you've made it you're going to be an assistant professor at harvard you could continue down that road but it just didn't feel like destiny to you and and this gift of illness was the doorway that you needed to to step into your destiny and fulfill it which i have no doubt you are doing did you, at the time, have the language and the consciousness to realize that that is what was happening? Or did that come later when you began to study the classics of Chinese medicine and Taoism and Buddhism? I mean, the study of something as comprehensive and complex and sophisticated as any kind of uh, relatively complete ancient system of knowledge provides us with is a constant process of engaging, meaning it's back and forth. You, you read some, you get some inspiration from that, 
then later you meet a teacher who points out something in that text that you didn't see before. You go back to the text. You, in the meantime, you had different life experience. So that is the difference from a true classic to something that is more fashionable or just kind of written from more limited individual perspective is that there is this multi-layered eternal truth in there, which is particularly important in modern times where real teachers are rare, right? We are don't spend 20 years in, in a snow cave meditating under the auspices of a one-on-one -on -one master who teaches us. We take a yoga class and we, we think, oh, I, I should get my teaching certificate. I'm now qualified to have my own app and teach other people. So we know a little bit and we think if you can Google stuff, that's, that's enough, but that's for the data. You know, the, the kind of the Shingar Shang, the above the material level, spiritual uh, insight, this kind of enlightenment component that the ancients talk about that can really come only uh, from within in engagement with life itself, in engagement with uh, uh, master teachers uh, and uh, in the absence thereof, the ancient uh, classics who were written by master teachers um, and um, can therefore inspire our spirit and at different times of our lives, you know, always reading the Huangdi Neijing, for instance, the Yellow Emperor's Classic of Medicine. Uh, my dear colleague, uh, Liu Li Hong, who is sort of the main proponent of the classical form of our medicine in China and has uh, started a movement over there that's become quite popular and influenced TCM teaching there. His copy of the Neijing is so, it falls apart. He's read it so often. And when you ask him about that, uh, he says, well, it's, it's, the Neijing is a book and your life is a book. And as your eyes and your container is increasing, you go back to this book that you thought you understood already and checked off already. And now all of a sudden your filter is different. You see completely different things you didn't see before. That's why these classics, you should always be rereading and rereading and rereading and find that is very true. Yeah. So many of the holistic medicines, you spoke of some of them have, maybe perhaps all of them have a spiritual component, which is something that is, I think, fairly clearly lacking from allopathic medicine. What is the impact of spirituality in your life? I think the most important insight for me as somebody who was raised Catholic in a very, you know, my father was a, not only was I an altar boy and my, my grandfather was a personal friend of the Bishop of Mainz and was in some society in the Vatican where you would invent modern words, like people would meet once a year and speak Latin and would invent words that the Romans didn't have, like for refrigerator or so. <laughs> really? Those in Latin, so constantly updating the Latin dictionary. And uh, my father was the uh, 
house physicians of the largest uh, Jesuit university in the world in Frankfurt. And so we were constantly surrounded by this Catholic uh, religious energy. And um, of course, once I was old enough, then very typically, like so many of us do, whether you Jewish or Christian or anything else, if you young and grow up in this, I don't want to say orthodox, it was really because in Germany, Christianity is much less dogmatic than I experienced it uh, over here, really, it was a very lay uh, person's affair and the priest would always preach about Jean-Paul Sartre and modern political stuff much more so than some kind of you gotta believe and if not and then then thunder and lightning is going to strike you however uh, there was sort of a tedium around that going to church and so there was a sort of you, you just I turned 16 or once my dad kept dragging us along in the post-divorce years uh, my brother and I just stopped going to church and uh, were never interested. I mean, most people in Europe at that time, sort of in the 1970s, you were, I don't want to say against religion, but you would uh, consider yourself sort of, you know, you, you think organized religion is a, is a scam or you, you spend all this energy in it and it's just leading you down the wrong path. How could it be that one way is better than another? And it wasn't until I went back to China and um, stayed and you know, met Taoist teachers, met Buddhist teachers, met Confucian teachers, and spirituality was pouring out from every Chinese medicine text and from the history of Chinese medicine that really I felt like this, uh, um, what should I say? I mean, I've uh, technically, uh, I've done a lot of different things in my life. I stayed in Tibetan monasteries, have been initiated into uh, Buddhist uh, rituals. I'm technically an ordained Sufi imam. I'm uh, baptized Catholic. Uh, I'm the, the, the transmitter of a Taoist lineage. So I have a little bit of all of those. Uh, so I'm still of that um, conviction that organized religion is not so much for the 21st century in that it is um, that we need to believe that any one way is better than another, but that it's a part of human culture. Because in Chinese medicine, you have the physical essence of the body, you've got the electromagnetic essence of the body, and you've got the spirit essence of the body, right, the Jing Qi Shen system. And that is just what makes holistic medicine whole, therefore the term holistic, is that you not just look at the matter component of life, but you incorporate those other ones. But for me, it was just a liberation to see it doesn't need to be embracing of spirituality as a card-carrying member of a religion, or you are completely agnostic uh, uh, or atheist on the other side, but that you can 
be spiritual and uh, without having to follow just one way, but respecting all of the traditional ways of what I call the science of the spirit. So um, it it is like one of these, you could call them spiritual, but it is really part of my medical work, uh, modalities that I have uh, helped to bring to the Western world and to the field of Chinese medicine is the so-called Shan Ren Dao practice, or uh, which is a five element based um, emotional healing practice uh, formed by a Chinese educator and philosopher called Wang Fengyi who lived in the late 1800s and early 1900s. So about a hundred and plus years ago and established 800 schools specifically for women in Northern China. Uh, and that is all about that's Confucian based and is about a radical incorporation of moral and ethical beliefs into your everyday life, particularly into uh, family structures. And so that is something that I learned from engaging with the classical text, but in, in the history of how different doctors brought that spirituality into their own lives, but also in all of the spiritual teachers I had the privilege to meet that in the end it was very much about not so much here I'm making money, here I'm writing something academic, and then I'm doing something spiritual on the weekend. Go church, temple, uh, mosque, uh, or meditation retreat, what have you, but that the learning was that the temple of spirituality is present at any time, that every herb is spiritual in a certain way, that every needle you insert in the patient is elicits not just a physical and electromagnetic response, but an emotional and a spirit response, right? The second part of the Huang Di Neijing is called the Ling Shu, which is the, the needle classic, which is the spirit, the spirit pivot, you know, so literally needling was a spiritual affair where you're opening not just emotional and physical but spiritual pathways that doors that were jammed shut before and then yeah the realization that uh, every encounter with a patient uh, with your family members and uh, situations like we are in now is, is an opportunity to be active, not just on a mental uh, level, but engaging uh, what the Chinese call the heart, uh, that then becomes a, a, a not just a full body experience, but a, just something where you walk away from and feel like I'm nourished, I'm at peace, but I'm also on a not just because I engaged with uh, a person I didn't know before and touched that person's spirit, I, I, I learned something from that and I'm hopefully a better person because of that. So I would say that is sort of my spiritual belief and uh, attempt, you know, the kindergarten, of course, still uh, just every day at every moment to try and be aware of that, everything you do, everything you say, but also everything you think 
uh, has an effect on your environment and can create unity or separation. And uh, I think, uh, you know, that that's partially what's been so devastating the last four years is that, you know, everything we heard on the news was creating separation or so because it just stayed at this material level and it was all about money and business and us versus them. And um, <clears throat> we are tending to do that also with, if you have a purely scientist belief where it's always about data and evidence-based and we are leaving the other um, things excluded. Uh, same thing with the coronavirus, right? Where we counting numbers of infected cases and death cases, but the, the, you know, the tremendous pain and spiritual suffering that comes from not being able to be with your loved ones and not be in community, to not see people's face, to not hug somebody is a tremendous price. But with modern scientific matter-based um, perspective, we, we're not able to measure that. And therefore our decisions of what we should be doing or not be doing are, are somewhat limited. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. Can you talk a little bit more about, or maybe give a glimpse at what a five element emotional healing practice looks like or entails? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the five elements are basically, and this is the scientific procedure of all ancient people, the Egyptians were masters as well. And even the Greek and the Romans were all the way until the middle ages, uh, Paracelsus, etc., working with that system, which is basically, we said earlier that holistic medicine incorporates the realm of the invisible, the spirit, the consciousness, that governs energy, that governs matter. So in China, the main symbol to describe the realm of the invisible, while there are many like the Yijing and the six confirmations and is the five system. And the five system is basically using the physical markers uh, that dominate the four seasons. So you've got wood, so-called wood element for springtime when plant vegetation is dominating a landscape where you didn't have movies and computers and and things like that and then you have fire is in the summertime when you know you have lightning and spontaneous you have as we well know on the west coast our landscape is very much dominated by natural fires and you don't see that during other seasons in the winter everything is ice and snow so that's the the, the water element that is symbolic for that. And in the fall metal, <clears throat> you see everything is turning rust colored, um, at least in the Northern hemisphere. Um, and then the central <clears throat> transitional element is earth. So these are five material things that are really representative for five invisible functions. So that's what a symbol is. It's a material image that projects and symbolizes immaterial function, energy, spirit, things like that. And so every herb and every acupuncture meridian you basically diagnose, is this a fire problem? 
Is this a metal problem? Is this a, so, so the Chinese material medica is not divided into biochemically, uh, there's vitamin C and these sugars in, in Romania, but you would say this is a water element herb because it has this flavor and this color and goes to the kidney system, etc. And um, so the main modalities as we learn in school uh, are in Chinese medicine school, both in China as well as here is uh, acupuncture, of course, the herbal medicine, dietetics, massage, and maybe Qigong. So you are working in all of these parts of the body that are classified also as the microcosm of the bigger mirror image of the macrocosm. You know, just like the macrocosm has all of these different seasons and functions in it, the body also has different organs that have different functions in it. And what we do in holistic medicine in general, Chinese medicine in particular, is when we diagnose, we diagnose functional problems rather than structural problems, working on the energy and the spirit level, consciousness level, let's call it that. And um, treatment is also on that level because there is a hierarchy between consciousness governing qi energy which governs the material body so if somebody has a tumor and in western medicine you can't diagnose that until you see that on the ct but once you do the cure is to operate it out but then it will come back western medicine can't really explain that whereas uh, in our medicine you would say well you've taken out the material reality but the hierarchically higher energetic pattern that formed that tumor and the consciousness pattern that formed the energetic pattern are still there. And so we need to treat the root, the Neijing says, the classic of Chinese medicine, which would be we need to diagnose and treat really on that energetic and consciousness level. And it was therefore um, a revelation to me that even in communist China, which is of course greatly influenced uh, by materialist, Marxist materialist thinking, so that the so-called TCM system uh, that China has been rebuilding since 1956 when they uh, established the first modern Chinese medicine school was always under those auspices. So anything that was woo-woo, immaterial, spiritual, uh, even energetic, you would kind of push aside and just leave the part of Chinese medicine that can be explained through the lens of Western medicine and its associated sciences, such as anatomy, biochemistry, rather than you know, you would say, arguably, real Chinese medicine is closer to biophysics because that's all about electromagnetics and and uh, and psychology because con the study of consciousness, right? So it was this even in this environment, social environment that has been hostile for more than fifty years, right? The People's Republic of China was established in nineteen forty nine. Um, uh, 
you have basically purely uh, Chinese medicine lineages surviving in the countryside, of course, not within the TCM universities, and this uh, that that are purely operating on not just an energy level, arguably, you could say all acupuncture is working on that, but purely on that consciousness level. Because before there was just the theory, consciousness governs energy, energy governs matter, but most of what we learn in, Ch in Chinese medicine schools, we learn about the energy level and know there is a consciousness level, but how you work with that directly, other than pursuing your own meditation or so is uh, questionable. So here was a system where you directly, without needles, without food, without herbs, people consistently curing serious life-threatening diseases in that by the tens of thousands of cases was very interesting to me. And I'm eternally grateful for, once again, my dear colleague, Dr. Liu Li Hong, who I have already mentioned here before, um, of introducing me to this modality and the still surviving masters in this art. They are all like in their 80s, 90s, uh, some women above 100 who were still studying directly with Wang Fengyi in the 1920s and 30s, um, or 1930s here, he died in 1937, uh, are still alive. And the idea is that you have the human spirit, the spectrum of that is from a Confucian perspective, because this is a Confucian system, is divided into five ethical parts and they are classified in the five element system. And that is uh, the, uh, for the liver, that would be compassion, love and compassion. Why does this, uh, that goes with the wood element, which means <clears throat> the part of us that is positive like springtime everything blooms, everything gets created, everything is full of warmth. And then in the summertime, uh, the virtue, the associated virtue that goes with the fire element uh, in the human being is, uh, the Chinese call it li, and it means lots of different things. It can mean politeness, it can mean appropriateness, it can mean ritual, but really, if we go back to the original, what is happening in summer, everything is illuminated, it's full of light. So our ability to see light in every situation, including the presumably negative situation of having cancer that we talked about earlier, that is a deep politeness toward the universe because you're going like, you don't turn around and say F you to the universe. I don't like that test you're giving me, but you go like, I don't understand it. It's painful, but what do I know? And in that acceptance, there is a sort of a deep, so that it would be considered Li. And that's the virtue of a Li is associated with fire element and the heart. Xin, uh, trust and believe, the ability of trusting and believing it goes with the earth element and the spleen stomach. Uh, the zhi, wisdom, goes with the water element and the kidneys. And the, the metal element would be 
E, which would be selflessness in the highest, it includes equality and a sense of justice. But in martial arts, they talk a lot about jiang yi qi, you know, like you, somebody who's a team player because you think about the group first rather than yourself, that, that's a metal virtue. And at the same time, we as humans are constantly being tested because we are not like animals instinctively. When I need to eat, I eat. If I need to procreate, I procreate. If I need to poop, I poop. We always have a choice. And that means we have this high side where we are like a Buddha or God, or, uh, you know, like we are saint, we born as saints, infinitely compassionate, infinitely uh, trusting, infinitely wise, etc., infinitely selfless. But there's then our animal body and its selfish impulses is constantly interfering. So you've got the negative components that are also then classified in the five element system. And that would be, um, and you have that in Chinese medicine as well, but the Wang Feng Yi system adds another layer of complexity to that. Uh, so we have anger for the liver. That's the same in this system as well as in regular. That's the negative, that's something that poisons the liver. And, you know, like we would say in English, it's the bile that spewing bile, right, comes from there. Uh, and then uh, hatred in the heart is the opposite uh, of the, the, the deep uh, acceptance and the ability to see the light. Um, and then this is now the Wan Feng Yi system, the regular Chinese medicine classical system is, is a little bit different, but uh, those are all true at the same time, we can say from a clinical perspective. Um, but since you asked about this very specific Wang Feng Yi system, let's do it in this vein. So the negative for trust with the earth element would be blame. And for Wang Feng Yi, that was the central one. He even has a, you know, a famous story where a professor from Beijing University visited him at the Siberian border where Wang Fengyi's village was. He was uh, a peasant saint. He was technically illiterate who was just uh, educated through the story, Confucian storytelling tradition and uh, life practice. Um, so when that learned man came to him on in a horse cart and took him three weeks to get to the master's house, he said, what do you have to say to me? And he said, Three words, don't blame others. And then he said, well, that's all. I came all this way for this. And he said, that's all. And then he left the room and he let them stew. He waited for another week. He never came out. And then he went back to Beijing. And then 20 years later, wrote a book about how this koan, so to speak, inspired him to, to, to change his life over time because for modern people that is the hardest thing is we have this knee-jerk reaction to always to never want to take self-responsibility everything is i've got bad genes from my ancestors uh why are the gods giving me this you know uh, this uh, bad situation in life why did i have this ac accident uh it's my wife's fault it's my my child's fault they are not being 
polite enough, even though I, they are ungrateful, it's my boss's fault, etc. It's always somebody else's fault. So that is literally from this perspective is like a boomerang that comes back to hit us. There's a chemical reality every time we full of gratitude, full of love, we perform an act of compassion, positive glandular things will be generated and energies will be generated, not just for the others, but for ourselves. And that is better than any herbs. By the same token, anytime we angry, anytime we are um, full of hate, especially and full of blame, uh, or in the case of the negative metal element going with the lung, uh, a sarcasm, irony, judgment, you know, everything is like a knife, therefore metal, we cut everything into pieces where we have a chance to, to uh, look at the purity of it, we, we, we find something wrong with it. And then arrogance and disdain for the water element, thinking we better than other people, we are producing chemicals and energies in our body and negative karma, so to speak, also on a spiritual level, but uh, even just from a physical perspective, we're producing poison for our body that gets stored literally in our tissue and our bones. And as through storytelling and through two-week retreats, where you typically with 30 people, where everybody goes around a little bit in the vein of the Catholic confession, there is a topic and you speak about this is what I did wrong in relationship to my ancestors. This is what I did wrong in relationship to my friends. This is what, where there was a, or here's something positive. So you, you get cooked over a two week period where you don't speak at all, but then, uh, and you listen to all of these intense uh, stories from other people that is sort of one mechanism in which this can happen you literally and then you have these evening sessions where literally people have spontaneous diarrhea all of a sudden or they have um uh, and some people laugh or cry uncontrollably or uh um, um vomit and there is even a theory then if you're toxicity is from blame, then the flavor of the vomit will be Swedish, whereas it will be more accurate if it comes from the, from the metal element, or it will be more bitter if it comes from the heart, etc. So it is a very, you know, starts with consciousness, emotions, but then the end has a very physical result. And the idea is you are cleansing yourself from these toxins that's been in your body for a decade long blaming and hating etc and uh heightening your awareness how you're doing stuff like this all the time even if you think you aren't and um, then at the same time tonifying yourself with these pop by becoming by converting negativity into positivity and um so i find that a very not just from a medical perspective, because this really works. I visited lots of people who've cured themselves on their deathbed with that. Um, so there really is a hierarchy of 
consciousness over energy over matter if you really apply yourself these things are possible we know that also from reading books like bernie siegel's love medicine miracles right where some people full of metastasis stage four two weeks to live but then they they live for another 20 years the metastasis go away and it's usually because of some spiritual uh, insight or or consciousness turn that makes that happen according to bernie siegel's book that i read myself uh, 30 some years ago when i had uh, cancer myself uh, but also from as a sinologist uh, from an anthropological perspective that that kind of a system still exists on our planet particularly in communist china i that uh, really tickled me and 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 uh, gave me sort of a pioneer feeling trekking to these northern Chinese villages and experiencing these sessions, storytelling, and then vomiting sessions <laughs> with the <laughs> Chinese uh, people there. Yeah. In that hierarchy with consciousness, kind of guiding spirit, guiding matter, or sorry, guiding energy, and then guiding matter, as you were speaking of love and the other emotions it's it's been determined that as that energy that love puts off it triggers a material reaction in the body it releases chemicals in the body and it's been demonstrated that we can't hold in our hearts in our bodies two opposing emotions at the same time and so if we're filled with love then it displaces hatred and so it's it's a great practice to return to again and again i find to always try to be conscious of the energy that is basically controlling our material world because we can change it we can change it just by changing how we feel just by changing the consciousness of that we have in any given situation our spirit in that situation wow what a lesson what so many lessons thank you for this you you just mentioned being this pioneer feeling like this pioneer when you started studying the Chinese language and learning that these philosophies exist. I'm curious, I know where the Chinese medicine inspiration came from, which was healing. Where did the inspiration come from to study Chinese language? That is a very good, that, that, that is one of these things that is not totally clear to me now because certainly Chinese anything wasn't really part of my upbringing at all. Uh, it was, uh, there are very few universities in Germany that teach that Chinese studies. You really need to kind of go out of your way to find that. What happened was uh, that I can remember was that after my parents got divorced at age 12, my father was a busy doctor. He, uh, we were four children. The two girls went with my mom, they were younger. My brother and me stayed with my dad, but my dad had too much work and too many heartbreak and emotional problems that he could really, he stopped uh, rearing us. So for the first two years, he was uh, hiring household help and it happened to be a, 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 a poetess as like a 27 year old woman who was a journalist and author of poetry who uh, had a child on her own and needed a safe place and uh, to do that. And so they, she stayed at our house and uh, got a salary and cooked for us. And, but she was also uh, 
very influential, I think, particularly in my love for later love for literature. And uh, I would like write uh, 12 page letters to her and things like that. It was, it started at that time. And she, the father of her child was a Israeli um, Navy uh, crack troop person who was actually the commander of the 1969 raid of the Israeli military on uh, Marseille um, submarine, nuclear submarine bunker, uh, because there was some political fallout uh, between the two countries where the, they were already paid for. Uh, and then something happened, the French said, we're not giving you the submarines. And the, 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 the Israelis sent their crack troops to steal the submarines in the middle of the night. And he was the commander of that. So we had that person all of a sudden in our house. And he was a brilliant person who grew up in the Warsaw ghetto. His mom escaped there before the not two days before the Nazis closed it and killed everybody. Uh, then went to Poland and then went to Israel and was a super athlete and 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 uh, was also a poet and so super interesting person in this little podunk German suburb of Frankfurt of 120,000 people. He would take us bareback riding, tell us these stories of his Navy life. And uh, he would read the Tao Te Ching to me and I wouldn't in German and I wouldn't understand a word of it, but I, it felt like it was like electrifying something and it stayed with me. Uh, and so I picked German literature as my major philosophy as a minor, but it, in the University of Tübingen where I went and close to Stuttgart, one of these old medieval uh, 1500s uh, university, just like Göttingen and Heidelberg, a very beautiful picturesque town. Uh, also loved that part of my life, staying there for two years. Um, it, um, they, I had to have two minors. And so I picked Sinology, which is Chinese studies, Chinese language, history, literature, etc. And I went there and after my first lesson or the first week, uh, I was again had this feeling of being thunderstruck and were like just found myself in my room every three hours practicing Chinese characters. And uh, so after two weeks, I changed my major from German literature to Sinology and I never looked back. And I was one of the normally people at that time, they graduated after four years and then went to China because they could only have 30 Germans at that time allowed per year into China, 30 Chinese people coming from communist China to um, German universities. And I had the good luck of being in an international student dorm with <clears throat> Chinese people. So I was already relatively um, fluent in, in modern Chinese speaking. So I was able to go to China relatively early after my second year and uh, then met my wife there and then, then, then went to the University of Chicago. So I never looked back at that point. That was just my life. So. <laughs> Another beautiful example of the universe bringing to you what, what you needed to fulfill your destiny with the apparent negative divorce of your parents came this beautiful family 
that inspired you and taught you so much. It's incredible. Yeah. I want to talk a bit about the work that you do. And I thought maybe we could talk, if you could talk a bit about symbolism and cosmology and, and what you teach there and, and the work that you do with that. Yeah, thank you for asking that. That's indeed my, at least on the academic and university teaching side is my life's work there. In the clinical side, it's more, um, I'm like at least half of my time in the clinic as somebody who's had a serious disease. I've specialized a little bit in the treatment of difficult and recalcitrant diseases with particularly Chinese herbs. But on my uh, academic side, I've always been fascinated with the, um, yeah, with this, what we've already talked about a little bit about, which is this ancient holistic concept <clears throat> that is long before the advent of Chinese medicine in China was the basis of the Yijing, right? That you've got yin and yang, which means you've got the realm of immaterial, which includes spirit, which includes things like the Tao and the spirit called Shen and the Qi. And then you've got the realm of matter. And one is the mirror of the other. So matter in where it grows, how it grows, how what form it takes, what color it is, what taste it has, is a direct reflection of the formative energetics and the consciousness that created that plant in the first place, right? We have concepts like uh, Elliot Cowan's plant spirit medicine is sort of similar, right? That there is a not just biochemistry in plants, but a, a, an energy and even a spirit in there, which we try and capture in homeopathy, for instance, where you take a little palate and all of a sudden you feel totally different because you get a little bit of this essence of this inner teaching that this plant has to offer to you. And so the entire endeavor of Chinese philosophy and then culture and later medicine is about that. And um, I've mentioned earlier that in Chinese medicine, therefore, if the root is the consciousness and the energy, which is the invisible functional part, then um, of course your diagnosis needs to and your treatment needs to be anchored there. And the goal needs to be to make adjustments there. But um, the two ways, there are three ways of practicing holistic medicine, Chinese medicine included. And one, the highest one associated with a so-called upper level physician, according to the classics is direct knowing. I'm not intellectually thinking, but this is sort of like what Edgar Casey was like, right? The patient comes in, I'm not feeling the pulse. I'm not asking you any question. I don't even know what disease you have. I'm just saying, take belladonna or do castor oil packs on your liver or whatever it was that you prescribed. Stop drinking beer, eat more spinach, something like that, right? Um, and this is what, why in ancient times uh, all physicians had a spiritual practice because that was not considered 
different from their craft. It was a prerequisite to their craft because for them, it was a science. It wasn't divorced from everything else that they were doing on the material sphere. It was honing their skill to be more sensitive and therefore perceive chi, perceive energy and perceive uh, the quality of consciousness uh, of a person or also the negative kind of um, diseases that they have. And so practices like Qigong or meditation uh, or mantra chanting or breath exercises or stretching, et cetera, or even martial arts or even playing sacred instruments like the qin, the ancient lute, they are all geared toward making you more and more sensitive so you can improve your way of direct knowing. But that some people get it in six months and other people get it in 20 years. And so while this kind of training is going on, there is also the path of the mid-level physician, which is indirect knowing, meaning philosophically, cosmologically, there is this ancient assumption that ties microcosm and macrocosm together, that ties matter and the sphere of the guiding and hierarchically higher non-matter together. And uh, the place where they come together is in the, in, in the sphere of symbolic expression through images. And so that means if I have an energy inside of my body that is producing toxicity that manifests as a body rash, where that rash is, whether it itches or not, whether it is red or white or yellow or purple, uh, what shape it has, on what meridian is on, that, that is all symbolic and relevant to the indirect diagnosis of what the quality of the underlying energy is, okay? So I'm using matter as a mirror to, you know, so we always ask, where does it hurt? How does it hurt? When does it hurt? Completely irrelevant in Western medicine. What kind, where is your mole? Uh, that's, where is your wart? Those kinds of things are, don't matter in Western medicine, but in Chinese medicine they do because your body just like nature itself is producing symbols that let you know through observation, palpation, asking questions, feeling the pulse, looking at the color in the face, looking at your tongue, looking at your eyes, will give you an indication what lies underneath in the realm of the invisible. So it's sort of a black box approach. And in order to better understand the 12 organ networks of Chinese medicine, um, which we always think of through the lens of anatomy and modern conditioning, which is entirely materialist. Uh, we, when we hear liver, we think that's the Western liver. When we hear heart, we think it's this pump right here. When we hear kidney, we think it is this, when it is really the 12 Chinese so-called channels or meridian systems they are entirely functional and only secondarily a material. And so we can therefore not, and this is the unfortunate truth, how modern TCM is often practiced because it has so much influence from not just Marxist materialism in China, but also our 
scientism over here um, that in the regular TCM system, we tend to treat, oh, you have hepatitis, well, let's treat the liver channel in Chinese medicine, or you have nephritis, let's treat the kidney channel in Chinese medicine, you have bronchitis, let's treat the lung channel in Chinese medicine, when the anatomical organs may be like a transformer station on an electrical line and are part of what we call the lung or the liver or the kidney, but they are so much more than that. They are a functional relay system and therefore uh, my main teaching other than in herbs and qigong has been in Chinese medical theory trying to define the functions of the 12 channel systems of Chinese medicine that are direct in the most ancient uh, way of looking at it, a, a mirroring of what happens in nature during the 12 months of the year, right? The concept of the 12 houses and the zodiac that is Chinese, is Indian, is Egyptian, is Sumerian, is, is Roman, is Greek. And so that is a universal system that you have these 12 stellar constellations where the sun and the moon meet and they are, make our calendar. And that is the, the law of the macrocosm in the cycle of the year, which has not just the four seasons, which are described through the four plus one elements in Chinese medicine, but you've got the further differentiated, you have the 12 months of the year. And detailed descriptions of in the first month in the Northern Hemisphere where China is and where most of us in the Western world live, it's um, we have um, this happens, you know, and what is happening is described with symbols like the five elements, but also so-called certain hexagrams that go describe the energy of the month so-called 12 earthly branches um, and et cetera, et cetera. So we have this entire macrocosmic science and this is the missing link we have in modern TCM where Chinese liver is not that different from Western liver. It just has a meridian attached to it that you can needle. Chinese kidney is not that different from Western kidney. It just has a meridian to attached to it that you can needle when in actuality, there was a system of linking that these 12 functional channel systems to 12 powers in nature that the Egyptians called the 12 natures, that the Chinese called the 12 month gods that we know existed also in China, very similar to Egypt, and that they then incorporated to 12 power functions in the human body that they call the 12 officials, but they have little in common with the Western organs. And it is those that we need to diagnose and it is those that we need to treat. So by looking at the symbolic language of Han Dynasty times 2000 years ago when Chinese medicine was not just first conceived, but was described in great detail in the Huangdi Neijing, the Yellow Emperor's classic of medicine, I'm basically teaching in my classes this, you know, what does this particular hexagram or this particular element or this particular um, um, earthly branch and this particular animal that 
is associated with the earthly branch, right? We all know born, I'm born the year of the ox, you born the year of the dog, your he is born in the year of the tiger, etc. All of those we can directly associate with a particular organ and then define it that way. So all of a sudden, we not just have an anatomical relationship to the Western organ and, and to the meridian, but we have very sophisticated, multidimensional functional layers and spiritual layers uh, of, that are important for modern patients because they don't just come in and say, I have hepatitis. Very often they say, Western medicine says I don't have anything but in my dreams, I have this recurrent nightmare. And I always feel like emotionally that I am in my relationships and unworthy or people are telling us a story and uh, just equating the modern liver that the Chinese liver with the modern liver is not gonna help us diagnosing those kind of people accurately. So that is my, uh, one inspiration for this path has been uh, the symbolist Schwaller de Lubitsch's work, who was a French person who uh, lived in the late 1800s and early 1900s, was a student of the symbolist painter Matisse, and then had sort of a salon in Switzerland in Saint Moritz, where they were discussing symbolist things. And then went to Egypt for 15 years during the 1930s and 40s to study exclusively the temple of Luxor, which he correctly identified as being a, a replica of the human body. So you've got these 12 chambers in this temple or 12 parts of that temple that not only reflect macrocosmic function going with the 12 stellar constellations in the 12 months of the year, but 12 major neteric functions in the human body. The, the Egyptians, by the way, also had 12 passageways that, uh, you know, that, that are not unlike the 12 meridian systems. There's lots of research, comparative research waiting to be done there. But so he went and looked at the, the in this particular chamber were, the, the head of the temple is, you know, he documented and showed that the Egyptians already knew about the function of the pituitary gland, but it was all expressed in symbolic language through math, through numbers, through images, through stories, and he was able to decode that. So that's been my work for the last 20 years is trying to decode the Han Dynasty record of the formative period of Chinese medicine when those 12 meridian systems were first defined at a time when everything was alchemical to ancient people, namely as above, so below. As in the macrocosm, as in the universe at large, so in the microcosm of our human body. And then having symbols that describe what's happening here, like an eagle or a tiger or a dragon symbolizing something that goes on in the body. So. That's uh, really interesting to me. I hope I didn't bore you and your listeners. With <laughs> Not that. at all. Uh, I, I am curious, and I don't, probably should know this, but in the Chinese, in the in the language, are the meridians 
the naming of the meridians different than the anatomical organ names? So is is the large intestine organ Da Chang, or is that not the case? Yes, it is the same. It it's is the same. It is the same. Uh, and that is part of the reason why it's so easy to mistake the anatomical organ for exactly. that. The Neijing itself also has anatomical descriptions of the organs, like it says the, the large intestine is so-and-so long and has a volume of so-and-so. So, But once you look at the numbers, you see they are further functional symbols because obviously every person's length of the large intestine volume is different. And again, the, in the choice of numbers and the descriptions of those organs, that's more of a symbolic functional description that tells us more about the function of it than the actual um, anatomical uh, description. Like there is a famous uh, physician who falls into the late 1800s uh, called Wang Qingren, who uh, is a, was a lay medicine person who was simply like so much in ancient times in order to be a doctor, you needed to be able to be educated and read the medical text. So he was an official in a district and his hobby was to see people in his off time as patients and he, in secret because that was illegal, but as an official, he had uh, like the mayor of a town or a district, he was able to go to the charnel house at night and uh, uh, cut open dead people. So he would do autopsies basically without any proper medical training and uh, would then, and then finally wrote a book that is interesting in many ways because it so documents this misunderstanding even in China of you know functional medicine system versus uh, anatomical understanding of the organ networks is is called Yilin Gai Tso, which means correcting mistakes in the medical books. He basically said what I found in the human body was completely different from not completely different, but the ancient texts are wrong about that because the ancient texts are not describing, is my answer to that, an anatomical reality. They even in their describing, just like ancient storytelling is not meant to describe what really happened at that moment in history. It's meant to impart a moral lesson to the people who live today. And so it was even the anatomical, seemingly anatomical description of the organs in the classics was a further symbol for their, their, their function. And so because of that understanding, people joked about that later and said, the, the correcting mistakes in the medical books Haha, ha, the more you correct, the wronger it gets. You know, meaning your formulas are awesome. Uh, I, I have a, a, you know, one of the things I did other than my academic work in my clinic, I also have a small herbal company called Classical Pearls. And um, 
in there, I still produce Wang Qingren's uh, formulas. Uh, among them, Xuefu Zhu Yitang dispel stasis from the mansion of blood decoction, which is fantastic for uh, blood moving, uh, blood stasis in Chinese medicine. Uh, but indeed, as a theoretician, he was off because he didn't understand the, 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 the primarily functional and therefore symbolic nature of uh, the description of anatomical realities in the classical text. Um, so, and that misunderstanding plagues, particularly the TCM brand uh, or scientist influenced or Marxist materialist influenced brand of Chinese medicine to the present day, because there's a dogged adherence to biochemistry and anatomy, uh, very much like Western medicine, when the strength of this medicine is that it has so much more to offer diagnostically and treatment wise, because it penetrates into this functional realm, into this energetic realm, even all the way into the emotional and consciousness realm. And you teach also, don't you, about the spirit of the naming of the points and the naming of the herbs, because there's so much more to those than just a name that's given. There are stories that are told in those names, and those stories tell the, the uses. Is that correct? Absolutely. That those are now mandatory courses. They were used to be electives, but uh, at our College of Classical Chinese Medicine at NUNM in Portland. Um, and the motivation for including that in the curriculum was at the beginning at least was purely practical because you have people who come to, to, to Chinese medicine school because they have a love for nature. They like to do Qigong and yoga. They like uh, anything that has to do with energy and spirituality. And all of a sudden, you come, at least in TCM school, which we're trying to avoid that at our college, but you know we have now over 60-some uh, colleges of Chinese medicine out there, and uh, over 50 of them are definitely of that um, TCM persuasion. And the goal is to, and, and to some extent, uh, that flavor is not totally avo uh, avoidable or wasn't at the beginning when you hire teachers coming out of those schools. Uh, namely, what uh, is the problem is that of infinite boredom. You so inspired, you want to do something different from Western medicine. And now all of a sudden you come to a curriculum that consists of preparing you for the national exam doing that by rote memorization. For this disease, for headache, use these points. Don't worry about why it's just these four points. Use these points and those herbs. For foot ache, use these points and these herbs. And then people go like, wow, that is, I'm sitting on my butt eight hours a day. And I thought I would be instructed in something that is life-changing, not just for others, but for myself. And here I am just cramming data. And nowhere while we implemented those kinds of content in uh, particularly the theory class and, and, and the very intellectually complex and stimulating formula classes, herbal formula classes, but the most difficult thing to teach is acupuncture location classes were 
in the Western naming system, you basically get say, here is lung one, and it treats coughing and sore throat. And here's lung two and treats coughing and sore throat. And here's lung three and coughing and sore throat. And it gets a very tedious and boring. And this is like five centimeter be, be below the malleolus. And the next one is seven centimeters. And some people are good at cramming that, but a lot of the more artistic and musical and, uh, you know, uh, humanistically inspired uh, students of ours who come into the natural medicine uh, uh, profession, they find that that, that wasn't uh, what they signed up for. And so right during the first year, as somebody who is not an acupuncture expert, but as somebody who trained for many years without one minute of boredom, including the acupuncture classes, I simply didn't believe that you can't teach acupuncture in a more inspiring way. And I came across a sentence by Sun Tzu Miao, the great physician from the sixth century, who was often venerated as sort of a patron saint of the medicine, sitting on the tiger, right, with a herb bolus in one hand and the acupuncture needle on another. And uh, he said the secret of the acupuncture point names is in their names and meaning all of that you need to know where the point is, what it does when it's healthy, what it symptoms you will get when it's unhealthy is all in here. Now the latter part of course extrapolated by myself later, uh, but he said all the secret is in there. And so we started teaching the Chinese names of the points, which before had been interpreted mostly flat materialistically, namely, um, I don't know, wind pond or something like that, where you, this is a point on the neck that is, you know, a pond is an indentation and wind is because, you know, that place is exposed you're not covered by clothes and you easily get headaches there because Chinese wind infection is invading there. So it's more of like a, once again, anatomical structural interpretation of the point names when there, I found that there are much deeper spiritual, emotional, mental content, both physiological as well as pathological information that helps us pick points. I mean, the better you get at acupuncture, the more you'll trust your hands. You don't even need to be mental. You just put your hands on the person and you will feel where the needle or the acupressure or your tuning forks, if you want to do acutonics, um, need to go. Uh, or your essential oils or your gemstones, whatever. How There are many ways how you can manipulate and work with the points other than just needles. But um, so there's the direct way of knowing and there's the indirect way, which is through what element is disturbed, etc. but also through the name of the point names, which has often a story, is evoking a place in China that still exists where certain things happened 2000 years ago. And if all of a sudden the patient starts talking, you go like, that's the story. That's the story of use Greek mythology, King Midas or something that we feel 
we narrated, of course, in Chinese terms, Chinese mythology in this, in this point. And so by learning the names of the points in the original Chinese, we learn a three-dimensional story that helps us later, not then rote memorization, but everything we can more easily remember. And most, more importantly, when we in front of the patient, spontaneously something rises to the surface and go like, oh, I'm gonna use small intestine four for that because it's called wanglu, which is the blaming bone. And this person is all about trying to blame others and trying to, uh, right, this is a, right here, as we blame others, we wanna wiggle ourselves out, out of a situation. So they are literally even wringing their hands as they're telling me about how it's all their partner's fault, et cetera. Um, that point literally is calling us to needle it. And that's totally different from saying, small intestine four treats neck pain, end of story, let's move on to the next point. So it was just an attempt to make it didactically more interesting and to honor not just our students but and the teachers who teach it, but also this tremendously sophisticated record of ancient wisdom. It's not a boring litany of data, but it's this tremendously interesting and uh, multidimensionally engaging uh, wisdom that is, uh, is transmitted if you only look hard enough and are willing to, to see that. Yeah, there's poetry in every aspect of it, and the poetry has such deep meaning. And yeah. another, I guess, part of your legacy is, is helping to carry on that legacy of the point names and the spirits of the points and the herbs, because as you said, in most of our institutions, that is being overlooked. So great work on doing that. I want to give you the chance, I know we're, we're going quite long here. I, I do want to give you the chance to talk about the College of Classical Chinese Medicine and also classicalchinesemedicine.org, if you want to speak about those two. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, I when I was in China, I had the good fortune to sit with these uh, masters, both outside as well as inside the university, insofar as, as they're still masters exist in modern China. And one of my main teachers was Professor Deng Zhongjia, who is still active as a doctoral advisor in his late 70s at Chengdu University of TCM. And he is uh, the main expert in Chinese medicine theory and uh, herbal formulas in China has edited many editions of uh, re related textbooks in these two disciplines. And at the time, he was also the dean of the Department of Foundational Studies at the university. So anything that had to do with Chinese medicine, philosophy, cosmology, base curriculum, he was in charge of. And he said, I wish I could teach Chinese medicine how I wanted to, but I can't because I'm in this very dogmatic system where everybody, whether you're a nurse or uh, uh, just an acupuncture two-year curriculum student or a doctoral level student or a professor, you all learn and teach from the same textbook. And it is basically revisions of the Barefoot Doctor Handbook from 1950 something. Um, uh, so kind of a very 
dumbed down and oversimplified version of the medicine when he was this incredible intellectual and uh, coming from Shanghai originally and uh, by the way legally blind and overcame his blindness with the help of Chinese medicine, uh, Qigong herbs and, and acupuncture and uh, but if you look at his eyes nowadays he's still blind but he can see so that's another miracle of Chinese really? medicine that there is a way how the body has other pathways than just these normal vessels that we think that it can, uh, so that he's a very interesting figure. And so he said, what my hope is I'm teaching you, you are starting your own school and you are, or you're helping to do something in the West. And then because we Chinese are always enamored with Western stuff, we then, if that flies over there, then all of a sudden it's okay to re-import the more classical, the more sophisticated, the more holistic, the more functional, the more energetic and spirit part of the medicine uh, that is not just a barefoot doctor handbook that's good for a two-week cram course back into China and can re-influence how we teach the medicine here because our medicine is literally going downhill as we keep, instead of adding on more and more layers, we add on more quantity, the universities are getting bigger and bigger, but we are re really, the students we turn out are getting lower and lower in quality. They get higher and higher degrees, but they, their practical, their ability to in clinical practice excel is getting lower and lower. And so the first thing I did coming back to the Western world in 92 was, and, and uh, to not just start working at an institution, but uh, picked an institution where I was charged with developing a Chinese medicine program. So originally the naturopathic college in Portland and uh, what is uh, later became OCOM, the Oregon College of Oriental Medicine, they were in the same building and could share classes. And then OCAM became big enough to move out. So the naturopathic side was lacking a Chinese medicine program. So I was charged with the responsibility to develop a program and uh, I'm grateful for that and, and went to work right away. And we started, started teaching there in 92 and uh, formally got the program uh, established and then uh, accredited shortly thereafter in 95 and have been teaching there ever since. And the beginning, the profession was suspicious uh, when Western medicine schools, chiropractic schools, naturopathic schools want to have their own Chinese medicine program usually means you want to dumb it down, simplify it. So have a 500 hour program. When we did the opposite, uh, and uh, developed uh, probably the most quantitative as well in terms of hours, but also um, qualitatively the, the best, uh, uh, what, or I don't wanna say it's all relative really, but a focus on the classical deeper level aspects of Chinese medicine. And let's put it this way, gained the respect of the profession because we are sort of, the gatekeepers, you know, who, who say the history 
and the deeper practice of this medicine, the philosophy cosmology that then is able to influence a better clinical grasp of this medicine also is important to us. And we've in the process in the last uh, 25 years or so, since the inception of the college been able to change the curricula also of other institutions and you know coming full circle you asked me about my legacy that i'm happier than anything else about because that was always the goal to do something for the field where the field at least awakens to the fact there is more to chinese medicine than the cube standard of care diagnosis and practice a book um, uh, oversimplified version that's called TCM there but there is a whole nother world out there and not everybody may be interested in that but if you are you know there is here it is and so um, so we've attracted over time uh, students who are motivated into uh, really exceptional students uh, and some of them other careers that went bef before and uh, who are also interested in self-cultivation and interested in the herbs as much as they are in the acupuncture, which is the prime focus in other schools. And we also offer some reading of the, the classical text in the original um, as a sideline there. And then I have been going back to China with groups for the last trend almost 30 years every year almost and gathered tremendous amounts of footage of my teachers teaching me translating and uh, so we've created this um, database uh, where people uh, just while they're still students or while they are already graduated, they can use that as a resource at classicalchinesemedicine.org. Uh, some of it is sort of shorter and available um, for everybody to download and peruse. We have lots of articles about Chinese medicine and COVID right now, for instance. Uh, but then there's also a membership uh, forum. A lot of Chinese medicine schools are actually members so that their whole student population gets the benefit of having access to hundreds of hours of video teachings, a lot of them happening in China uh, of uh, some of my teachers and some of the people we've specifically sought out because they have something special to give that you normally might not learn at a regular school. So classicalchinesemedicine.org would be a good resource for a TCM student or a graduate to to look more at the, the classical components or the symbol science we talked about or the Qigong or, you know, uh, lectures by some of the people I mentioned here earlier, Deng Zhongjia, et cetera. Um, but um, yeah, thank you for giving me an opportunity to talk about those. Oh, well, thank you. And I've known, I've befriended a, a number of students and now graduates of your college. Uh, of course, I interviewed not long ago Brent Stickley, who has has come to Pacific Rim College a number of times. So great work. It's amazing. And classicalchinesemedicine.org, I've perused through it. It's a beautiful site, just filled with so much information. 
Did you want to talk at all about Classical Pearls or any other place where people can learn more about you and your work? Yeah, maybe just briefly that um, as an herbalist, I was always in the beginning focused on making the right prescription, having classical formulas that are inspired by this 2000 year old text called the Shanghan Lun, the treatise on disorders caused by cold, uh, which is truly amazing that you can give a remedy to somebody who's not diagnosable by the standards of Western medicine in the 21st century, yet you give them this 2000 year old remedy and they get better by taking that is mind boggling uh, really. Um, but I discovered uh, after really over 20 years of practicing that you can write the right prescription if you don't have the right source materials, you won't have the desired result. Um, same thing as you can say, um, you know, eat pork, don't eat beef, uh, etc. But then the question is, what pork? You know, do you buy that at some regular supermarket or you buy it from the neighboring farm where there's biodynamic farming and animal husbandry going on? That's completely different kind of substance. And in ancient times, a lot of the herbs in China were wildcrafted and they were farmed according to essentially biodynamic supernatural principles. But with the advent of Roundup and um, genetic engineering and industrial farming in China, all, a lot of the herbs, including common herbs like licorice and astragalus, they are genetically engineered. They are sprayed with with terrible uh, things. And that then to use that as a medicine, uh, that of course is not only uh, not helpful, uh, but might even be detrimental. So uh, I felt like unless I'm getting involved and by living in China for a total of like uh, seven years now and having teachers and friends and that are like, have become like family to me. Um, why not, I thought, why not start utilizing those contacts and starting to, instead of buying from somewhere in California where they contract to some vendor and uh, they contract to, so you, most of us don't know where these powder extracts that we're using or even the crude herbs come from. Uh, the goal was to kind of go directly to the source, even contract certain wild crafters or uh, uh, peasants ahead of time, pay them for the entire harvest ahead of time and make them grow specific herbs in particular regions to our specifications. Uh, and um, have somebody on the ground there to oversee that. And um, that was really, also eye-opening because I'm a university teacher identity-wise and academic uh, and very much as an herbalist, also an intellectual where I kind of fuss around with my herbs like a poet would fuss around with the words in a poem. But this is dealing with material things, moving you know, tens of tons of herbs around and logistics and how do you cool that? How do you dry that? Do you, you know, how do you extract that? And, that is not something I normally would 
have thought that I enjoy doing that, but because it has such direct relevance for clinical practice as an herbalist, this is, I'm so happy that once again, somehow, um, um, the, the uh, you know, once again, the universe somehow pushed me in that direction. You mentioned uh, my dear colleague, Brand Stickley. I'm glad to hear you've talked to him before. He's truly a, a very inspiring uh, person and colleague to work alongside with. Uh, another person uh, who just sort of semi-retired, but was a, a guiding influence and a dear colleague at NUNM's classical Chinese medicine college was Bob Quinn, uh, who recently moved to Arizona. Uh, and he was very instrumental in pushing me into that direction and say, as some, with your, you know, you speak Chinese, you lived there for a long time, you have the connections, and also you have the name recognition, people trust you, uh, you should consider doing your herb uh, business. And I started doing it and uh, with very modest investment and the powders arrived and passed customs and we put them in capsules and 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 they they uh, passed all of the inspections, but most importantly, they they the first batch flew off the shelves, and it's been growing ever ever uh, since. And so, I it's my greatest happiness to go to a conference on the at the East Coast, and I have somebody come up to me who I've never met before, and they say. I don't want to take a lot of your time, but I just wanted to let you know that I bring greetings from my aunt who uh, had incurable lung cancer, supposedly, and she took your glacier pearls and, and uh, uh, that I didn't prescribe, that somebody else prescribed. And uh, she is now in remission. And uh, those are just like the, the idea that, you know, other than the 20 people I see per week in my own clinical practice that I, with that decision, was able to touch uh, thousands of people's lives uh, through the hands of other practitioners. In addition to the academic teaching, uh, has also been a very uh, moving uh, and meaningful experience for me, and consider that also part of the the legacy. But uh, once again, thanks to my colleagues in the universe there to kind of pushing me in that direction because it's certainly not something that I planned to do at the very beginning at all. That's beautiful. Thank you. I, I could, Heiner, I could talk to you for hours. Um, maybe we can do a, another session at another time for another episode. I'd love to. You just I, let me know. Yeah, I would love to talk more about Qigong, about starting up classical pearls and the experiences there. There's so much. But I'll let you go for today. We're pushing two hours right now. I'm gonna have uh, I'm gonna finish here with a quick speed round that has developed over the course of this interview. Just four short questions. Uh, number one is your favorite herb. My favorite herb, I probably would say cinnamon. It's just so important for it. It uh, because in Chinese medicine you have yin yang, right, which includes in the herbal world warming or cooling or, or moving or consolidating, those are all yin-yang pairs. And uh, the biggest yin-yang is deficiency in excess and most modern chronic patients suffer from that. And it, it, it disperses toxicity and it moves depression, but at the same, it gives you energy 
but it doesn't make you lose energy like a Fedra, for instance, like Mahuang, which wouldn't be sustainable, therefore. And it's not toxic, it's a food grade herb and just very suitable for the modern Western person who's both stuck and deficient at the same time. And would you recommend people consuming cinnamon just as a, as a food spice on a daily basis? Yes and no. Um, cinnamon is more of a concept because the medicinal cinnamon is actually completely, not completely, but different from the spice cinnamon, which is considerably weaker, uh, which comes from uh, Sri Lanka or and they are usually come from uh, is the bark from the spices of five-year trees where you you're killing the tree and you taking the bark off and then you get these rolled things and then you grind that into a powder whereas the cinnamon most often used is the twig of a particular it's a vietnamese cinnamon plant is the best one that either grows in guangxi province of southern china at the vietnamese border or on the vietnamese side uh, and it's particularly the twigs, uh, or it is the bark. And to achieve medicinal grade, it needs to be 50 years old, uh, the tree. Wow. And those trees are less and less uh, to come by. So yeah. yeah, you could eat cinnamon, have a little bit of that uh, thing, but that wouldn't. And then, of course, the biggest part of Chinese herbalism is formula studies, alchemy, which combines you know, the next herb then would be yes. peony because one yin, one yang. So you com combine the moving and warming aspect of cinnamon with the cooling and the moisturizing and the consolidating and astringing aspect of peony. And then you really have something that is sustainable. <laughs> if you eat, you know, I remember in the winter time we would go skiing and if you were drenched to the bone and there wasn't enough hot water in the Black Forest. My grandmother immediately would make so-called Grisbrei and put a lot of cinnamon on top of it. And you would eat this hot cereal and the cinnamon would make you sweat and warm you right up. And But if you eat that breakfast, lunch, and dinner every single day, even though I love that, you would reject that after a while because it's not balanced, right? Right. Any medicine is by definition not balanced and so the formulas they really balance things so something like the the guijitang which is in the cinnamon pearls uh, or other cinnamon based formulas like evergreen pearls uh, etc they they are more sustainable and you can take them for uh, for weeks if not months in a row with only positive effect if it's correctly diagnosed because there are not one herb in there but there's 12 herbs in there or 15 herbs and right. they're all working together yeah okay number two what kind of goats do you have oh they are i think all of them at this point they are 50 percent alpine and 50 percent nubian Okay. So I think there's something about the milk or so that then yeah. you get the benefit of one and not the other, but they're not these African pygmy, pygmy goats, but they're the bigger kind of uh, yeah. goats. Yeah. We're about 50-50 Nubian and Sanon. Ah. Yeah. So number three, when can we expect your autobiography? <laughs> Before, I don't think my... I like to, while I like to talk about my life in these kind of informal settings or so, it's kind of fun to reminisce, but I don't, uh, 
hopefully don't take myself important enough that <laughs> I, think I need to put that in book form before uh, like the symbolism that is something you know 20 years of research I've been talking about a lot I've created a lot of videos and teachings but that really requires a book just to not have it all right. wasted so that's if I write a book and during the next 10 years or so it would be about that long before I would consider even a autobiography okay okay fair enough all right last but not least what is the Latin word for refrigerator? <laughs> I've forgotten. Oh <laughs> no! Well, that's a great question. I was thinking about that earlier as I mentioned it, and I somewhere in the nachlas in the papers of my grandfather, I'm sure I would be able to come across it. I have to ask my 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 father. Uh, had five children. There are only two of them alive one of them being my godfather, I have to ask him and see whether I can find that. Maybe we, next time we talk. We can save that for the next episode. Heiner, thank you so much. It's been an honor. I've learned so much. And my spirit has definitely been nourished through this experience. So thank Same you. Here. Uh, thank you for getting to know and your show a little bit better and to give me an opportunity to connect with all of your listeners. Thanks for all the great work you do, and until next time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with Dr. Heiner Fruhauf. For more information about Heiner and his work, please visit the websites classicalpearls.org, classicalchinesemedicine.org, and nunm.edu. If you are interested in studying Chinese medicine, the School of Acupuncture and Chinese Medicine at Pacific Rim College offers world-renowned multi-year programs, including world's first study options combining acupuncture with Western herbal medicine and holistic nutrition. Visit pacificrimcollege.com to learn more. Also, don't forget to check out our online education in Chinese medicine by exploring the amazing course offerings at pacificrimcollege.online, including many courses featuring other guests of this podcast. If you are interested in receiving clinical services in holistic nutrition, herbal medicine, and acupuncture and Chinese medicine, the student clinic at PRC provides more than 7,000 annual treatments. Live holistic nutrition and herbal medicine consultations are both available online, while acupuncture and Chinese medicine treatments can be had at our Victoria campus. Free treatment options are available in all areas. Visit the student clinic at pacificrimcollege.com for more information and to book your appointment. If you enjoyed this podcast, share it with your friends and family and give it a five-star rating on whatever podcast app you are using. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, consider the potential value in the three words that began this episode. Don't blame others.